Everybody wants to live the good life, but what does that really mean? And how do the mass media and popular entertainment confuse our understanding of it? Join us today as we explore those questions and more with author and philosopher Dr. Thomas Hibbs. I'm Dr. Bob Rice, professor of catechetics at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Rice, a professor of catechetics here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we're talking about virtue and culture. I'm joined by our guest panelist, Dr. Robert McNamara, who teaches philosophy here at Franciscan University and at our study abroad program in Gaming, Austria, and regular panelist, Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan. And we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Dr. Thomas Hibbs. Dr. Hibbs is the new president of the University of Dallas. Prior to that, he served for 16 years as the dean of the Honors College and as distinguished professor of ethics and culture at Baylor University. He received his BA and MA in philosophy from the University of Dallas and an MMS and PhD from Notre Dame. He has also taught at Thomas Aquinas College and Boston College. He is the author of numerous essays and books, including Shows About Nothing and Virtue, Splendor, Wisdom, Prudence, and the Human Good. Dr. Hibbs, welcome to our show. It's great to a, be with you. Yeah, it's a blessing to have you here. Why Thank don't you. we just start off by this idea of the good life? You know, it's something that everybody wants, and yet many people uh, have very different definitions of it. Uh, how might we approach that idea uh, from a Catholic perspective or a philosophical perspective? Well, I think if you, if you go back uh, to the classical authors, I think Aristotle uh, sets out one of the foundational accounts of the good life. And Aristotle begins by noting some of the things you just did, which is that the good is what all desire. And uh, yet that it's, it's complex, it's not easy to discern precisely uh, it, it, what the good consists in, uh, and that people have varying opinions. And Aristotle thinks in part it's by sorting through these opinions uh, that we come to a greater truth about the good life. But Aristotle sets out at the beginning of the ethics also certain criteria for thinking about the good life. So he says the, the good life for human beings is going to be something that's self-sufficient. So it's a good that has everything in it or the most important things in it. Uh, and it's something that once we have it, we can't lose it easily. Uh, he also thinks it's something that would not be desired merely as a means, but as an end. So if he takes up things like money, Right, and says, well, money can't, wealth can't be the good because that's an instrumental good. So the, the, the good life for human beings has got to be something that we desire for its own sake, for which, in a sense, we do all the other things that we do. And he comes up with the conclusion initially that it's, we call this happiness or blessedness is another hmm. way of translating the Greek term. Uh, and one of the things I think that's important to point out uh, in Aristotle's account is that Happiness for Aristotle is, uh, unlike for uh, much of our popular view of this, happiness is, is not something that's passive. It's not 
a mere contentment with one's life. It's not merely having everything that one wants and enjoying those things or resting from work. Happiness is an activity. So then the rest of the ethics, this long book that includes discussions of virtue, of contemplation, of friendship, one of the notable things about the ancient conversation about the good life is that friendship is an essential component of it, is an attempt to sketch out these activities that would be perfective of the human person and lead to happiness. Yeah. It's almost the opposite of what most people associate with the word happiness. I mean, when people right. in American culture hear happiness, you know, it's pleasure seeking. And so it's one of the options that Aristotle considers, but just negates, he rules it out. He shows that it doesn't really bring fulfillment. That's right. But the idea of pursuing the good, you know, in terms of virtue, in terms of contemplation, in terms of friendship, and these sorts of things, I think it just strikes a chord so that even if it isn't what people default to, you know, happiness is just amusement, I think once it's stated, people are like, well, yeah, okay, it is more than money, it right. is more than pleasure, it is more than power. Right. You know, and I, and I think there is still residual virtue left sufficient to draw people out, you know, and uh, I think this is the importance of the whole matter. That's right. And I think we, we also see, once we reflect upon it, that the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of honor, which are the three things that Aristotle takes up early, are things that, uh, that we do often pursue to some degree. But we find that a life organized around those things ends up having uh, failure in its midst and, uh, and unhappiness and, uh, and a lack of pleasure and pain. So I think that, uh, that reflecting upon these matters as Aristotle wants us to do, and he wants us to reflect upon our common experience. He doesn't want us to bring in some theory from completely outside of our experience. He wants us to reflect upon that experience and see if we can discern within it certain patterns of human life that are actually more fulfilling than others. And, and those are activities where we're operating at the highest level in accord with what's best in us for Aristotle. When, when Aristotle locates the center of happiness in the practice of the virtue of wisdom and the contemplation of truth, I've always had a curiosity about how he understands friendship in mm. relation to this heart and center of happiness. What, what could you say about that, the relationship between friendship, which appears to be essential to him to account for human happiness, and this idea that it's found in wisdom and the contemplation of right. the it's, it's a it's a puzzle in Aristotle's ethics. Uh, one seems more isolated in a sense. You could contemplate by yourself, and friendship is obviously other-directed and social. You know, it's, it's interesting in the structure of the ethics that, um, that uh, it, it, friendship shows up in the second half, sort of at yeah. the beginning of the second half of the book, and it's as if Aristotle sees in friendship, you've just discussed justice right before that, and Aristotle said that um, where there's friendship, justice is superfluous, right? So societies ought to aim to cultivate friendship amongst their members because in true friendships, there's no worry about who's getting what, right? Everyone's concerned with the good of the other. Mm -hmm. And so it, it comes in in a way as, a, as a, um, an answer to the big political problem of how do we live together. And of course, the ideal of living together would be to live together as friends. The other thing that's interesting about friendship as part of the account of the good is that friendship is a clear example of something that's desirable for its own sake. It's also useful, right, to have friends who can help you in times of trial, friends to rejoice with, uh, friends who can assist you when you have needs. But friendship is desirable for its own sake. We want to spend time with our friends not because of something else that comes out of it, but simply because that time is well spent and enjoyable for its own sake. Similarly with contemplation. 
for Aristotle. This is something that's worth doing for its own sake, contemplating the truth. Wonder, right? Wonder yeah. at beauty, at love, uh, at, um, at creation. Uh, this is something that we don't do for some other good to come from it. But the, the last thing I'd say about that is that Aristotle says explicitly in the conversation on friendship that with friends we're better able to act and to think. So that it's actually in, um, in dialogue with friends, it's in dialogue and action with friends that we come to know ourselves more deeply because our friends help to explain us to ourselves. Uh, but it's also the case that it's in conversation like this that we come to deeper insights about the human condition and the cosmos and God. So uh, this is the ultimate questions. This happiness is something we seek together and for one another and, and together with one another. That's right. Yeah. It, it remains a bit of a puzzle, I think, in the pre-Christian world how these things all fit together. Yeah. But Aristotle hints at ways in which we can't fully separate them. That's right. So Aristotle's not just simply stepping back and describing what social life in Athens is like, for example. That's right. This is prescriptive. This is really putting a light onto the human condition, which I think we can assume wasn't the case in Athens or any other place. There really, there really is a sense in, in which friendship, you know, when you use that word, it's sort of like uh, happiness. You, you almost have to redefine it as soon as you are enunciate the term because Absolutely. you think of the TV show Friends or you think of Seinfeld and the kind of nihilism, the kind of uh, egoism that defines friendship. It's a, it's a strictly voluntaristic thing that comes and goes, you know. But when Aristotle speaks of, of, of humans as being rational animals, it's, it's to pursue the truth, which is what brings fulfillment, but also we're, we're political, we're social animals. Right. And I almost don't want to use the word political because once again, you'd have to spend three pages redefining what we really mean by that. It's almost the opposite of what people would associate with it, you know. But in the process, I, I think that when you see what we're getting at or what Aristotle's getting at, that a friend is another self, that when you see him achieving success or growing in virtue, it feels the same as if you succeeded, you know. And Again, you strike that chord and people are like, yeah, that's sort of what I was looking for in high school and in right. college and afterwards. That's the kind of friendship. And, and then to say that justice is superfluous, I think that when you said that it was like a penetrating insight, of course. I mean, if that's another self, it's not just a debt to satisfy, to repay. Right. You really find your satisfaction in the good of the other self. Right. I think, I think the point you're making, uh, Scott, about language is a really crucial one that we need to keep in mind throughout these discussions of the good life, happiness, virtue, which is that, um, that our terminology is so jaded and constricted uh, that we really, we really have a, a kind of uh, bankruptcy of language yeah, exactly. and, and a deficit in the moral imagination. We lack examples, we lack stories, uh, we lack a full vocabulary for even describing these things today. Right. And so one of the first tasks, I think, as we're discussing these matters is to point out what's missing. Uh, and in some cases in our culture, things have gotten so bad that we don't even know that things are missing. So it's, it's one thing to, to have a sense that something's missing and not quite to have the language. But a, a, a worst case for us is not even to have a sense that there's something missing, that there's an absence. So I think the, the point you make about language is a really crucial one, that we, the language that we typically use uh, for these matters uh, covers over important insights and important elements of our own life. As you just said, I think when you point out to people what friendship is really about, according to Aristotle or Aquinas, 
people will say, I, I see that. And if they start to go through a catalog of their friends, they can see that that's why I consider this person a better friend, or that's why this friendship lasted, and that one didn't. Uh, so, but it, but it, it is a, a kind of engagement, that uh, sort of dialectical engagement with folks to, to question and answer, to get people to start to, to loosen up their language and get a sense of, of what's missing in the language that's present in their experience, but that they won't be able to appreciate or understand fully unless they can articulate it properly. Yeah. You, you mentioned Aquinas, and of course he was so brilliantly able to bring in the Catholic faith with the reason of Aristotle. So how did Aquinas then, taking that foundation of what Aristotle was talking about it, in a sense, baptize it, uh, really connect it to our living faith today? Well, I think this is, uh, this is one of the elements in the genius of Aquinas, the way in which he engages Aristotle on this matter. So I think he's going to agree with Aristotle and with other pagan philosophers, as did Boethius, as did Augustine, that happiness is something that's self-sufficient. Happiness is something that's desired for its own sake. Happiness is an activity. And then he's going to say, but we really never fully have that in our experience. One of the interesting things I think about Christian authors, you see this in Augustine, is that the the, the pagan philosophers tend to uh, engage their uh, predecessors in the Greek tradition, Greek tragedy, Homer, but they tend not to talk a lot about tragedy. And Augustine and others bring tragedy back in. Think of Book 19 of the City of God about the way in which the, the pagan world is just fraught with failure with respect to happiness and virtue. So they have a notion of what it is, but nowhere in their experience is it realized. And it's, it's, it's not realized in part because it consists only, the only thing that can fulfill that definition of happiness is, is union with God and union with others uh, uh, with God as well. Uh, but it's also, um, it's also not fulfilled because we have persistent moral failure in our experience so that the, the model of virtue that Aristotle gives us is in some sense an ideal that we all know from our own experience there's a scale of virtue and vice. And even those who are pretty high up on the scale of virtue uh, have experienced moral failure or temptation, uh, a division in the soul that the pagan world can't quite account for and that the Christian world, of course, accounts for through original sin. So when you bring in other virtues for Aquinas, like the virtue of hope, hope is not just a virtue uh, that pertains, although it does primarily pertain as a theological virtue to hope in God. It's also a virtue that keeps us from despair in the face of moral failure. So that if we accept the standard of virtue and find ourselves falling short, if you're in a pagan world, the, the possibility for moral transformation after a certain age is almost non-existent. So the, the Christian world meets this, the soul in a sense where it is, uh, facing tragedy, facing moral failure. One other thing I'll mention about this, there's a lot to say about the way in which Aquinas uh, transforms, engages and then transforms the Aristotelian account. Once you move into the Christian world, you get different examples of the virtues. So for, uh, for Aristotle, the chief exemplar of the virtue of courage is the warrior who goes into battle. For Aquinas, it's the martyr. And, uh, and, and so you get a different model using the same broad notion of the virtue. You get a different model for who exemplifies this virtue. And that indicates that you're in a different world, in a sense. Yeah. And uh, so there are lots of things to say about that. But I think the, the way in which Aquinas is happy to credit the pagan philosophers for their achievements, for their insights, 
but then to say at it's it's actually for Aquinas in their greatest moment of achievement that the limitations are most clear in the pagan world. Mm. So it's when it's when they understand that contemplation of God plays a key role in the highest good. It's when they define happiness as something that's self-sufficient and desirable for its own sake and that you can't lose. It's precisely in those moments that you see that philosophy in a sense is pointing, without knowing it, is pointing beyond itself right. to something that for Thomas is fulfilled in the Christian life. Well, there certainly is a lot to say and we will keep saying it, so please come back as Franciscan University Presents continues. One thing that I've, I've really noticed in my time here at Franciscan is that while I'm here and I'm surrounded by my friends who are all Catholic and are all striving for virtue, and that's the atmosphere of the community here at Franciscan, it's much easier for me to do the same and to really focus on growing as a person and growing in virtue in everything I do. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about virtue and culture with our guest, Dr. Thomas Hibbs. At the end of the last segment, uh, you were talking about how far philosophy can go, that even these pagan philosophers uh, were trying to achieve happiness and yet had a sense that, that wasn't able to be attained by themselves. So how does the light of divine revelation help us accomplish what we were created for? Yeah, I think you see, um, just on that, on the first point you made, I think you see uh, a sort of admission of this in Aristotle, whom we've been talking mainly about, right at the end of the ethics, the passage you mentioned on contemplation, where he's torn between uh, a life that's appropriate to us as in our embodied nature and this life of contemplation, right? And it, it's, it's the one place in the ethics where the language becomes, uh, sort of returns to tragedy. Right, where he says that we should strive so far as we can to make ourselves immortal and to unite ourselves with the divine, but there's a sense that we can't do it, right? that, that we're limited. Uh, and um, I think Christianity, uh, Christians read passages like that and say, well, of course, right? The pagans, that was a perplexity for them that they're left with in the pagan world, a kind of um, an unresolved question, what the, what the philosophers called an aporia. Mm -hmm. or something you could argue on both sides and really not figure out the answer. Uh, and I think Christians came along and said, well, of course there's this tragic character to our longings because, first of all, because we're fallen, and secondly, because it's only through divine grace that our nature can be corrected and then elevated to this vision of God. And it's a vision of God, of course, that doesn't exclude others. Mm -hmm. right? So that topic we were talking about earlier, the kind of question in Aristotle about what friendship has to do with contemplation, what, the, what our social nature has to do with our individual intellectual nature, uh, that's resolved in the Christian world uh, through the communion of saints, right? through the notion that even here and now we're united with those who experience the vision of God. And uh, so that, and briefly, that's 
the way in which uh, Aquinas and other Christians would respond to these pagan texts, which they read very perceptively and alertly and with great, um, with great interest, uh, because I think they saw that there were things that the pagans were pointing to uh, that, that overlapped with what Christianity teaches, but also ways in which they were admitting and longing for something more that, that philosophy alone could not supply. There's a sense in which philosophy does more than just ask questions that theology answers. They provide answers, and a lot of good ones. And I think so often Catholics in general are so quick to move from reason to faith, as though they're just asking the questions that we have the answers for in Revelation. When in fact these answers, though partially true, are partially true. Mm -hmm. And so they, they have to be corrected, they have to be purified, sometimes adjusted lightly or dramatically, but I, I think there's one element that is dramatic, an alteration that Aristotle would regard as almost inconceivable, and that is friendship with God. Mm -hmm. The communion of saints, you can work with that, you know, in philosophical terms, but the idea of friendship with God, friendship with God implies a kind of equality that Aristotle, I think, would just negate in terms right. of what we know about the metaphysics of being. But when the incarnation occurs, when the one who possesses uncreated being enters into, when the Son becomes our servant, then suddenly in his farewell discourse in John 14 through 17, he introduces the, you know, it's almost too good to be true. You know, I no longer call you servants, because that's mm -hmm. all creatures are. They're not children of God by nature. They're servants, they're slaves, they're divine property. But I don't call you servants because the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. I now call you friends. Right. So the revelation of the inner life of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, doesn't just open up possibilities for the mind to contemplate. It opens up possibilities for the heart to enter into. And not just with this kind of vertical friendship with God, but it then transforms human friendship as well. Mm -hmm. Among the disciples and among all of the saints, we aren't just children of Adam. We really are children of the God, the Father. And it's sort of like, well, you know, this sounds so nice, but it also could be reduced to pious rhetoric or kind of theological jargon. But I, I think it has to be unleashed precisely by showing how reason asks these questions, provides partial answers, and then faith takes us to a place where it's almost, you know, beyond our wildest dreams. Right. And how shocking this uh, preaching of the gospel would have been. Oh, yeah to the pagan, it was to the pagan world. And it should be for us, because right. I think, you know, when you see on television or pop culture, the internet, that kind of thing, a show called Friends, is that what we're talking about? That's almost exactly the opposite of what we're talking about, you know? Well, and the, one of the brilliant things in Aquinas is using Aristotle's conception of friendship as an analogy for charity. But it's also, I think, Scott, you're right to say that, uh, that a pagan reading that would have been simply astonished and offended. That's right. At least initially. And, and indeed, the pagan understanding, the Aristotelian understanding, helps us to understand what Christ says when he says friendship. Right, exactly. So we have theology towards philosophy and philosophy towards theology. Yeah, and friendship is one of the great ways of coming at the question of how we understand communion with God yeah. and with others. Yeah. Uh, uh, because I think if we can look to our own best experience of friendship and, and enhance that and expand it by what the philosophers can help us to see more deeply, that provides us a kind of insight, uh, a starting point for thinking about what our life in grace is and should be like. I, I get a sense that we, we tend to view, you know, moving from philosophy to theology, from reason to faith as a kind of line, you know, and it's a linear movement from from below to above, mm -hmm. where it needs to be circular. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which you get to faith and you return to reason and human experience and begin to recognize 
that Aristotle was really onto something even more than he probably realized. Yeah, yeah you know? exactly. And that's that, exactly that can right. add fuel to the fire for us as well. And the bigger issue in our culture, oftentimes we of faith think there's a theological problem in our culture. It's a philosophical problem in our culture. It's the way we think. Uh, as a catechist, I often find it's not for a lack of orthodox answers that young people aren't falling in love with Jesus. It's actually a lack of some of these basic understandings, even when it comes to relations with each other. We live in a culture, even though it's the communication age, uh, people have never been more isolated than they have been today. And a good friend of mine who's been in youth ministry for a while, you know, made a very insightful comment. He said, you know, about 10 or 20 years ago, you talked about, you know, you, you talked about, you know, having a relationship with Jesus Christ, and they'd say, well, who's Jesus Christ? Today, particularly with young people, you say, you should have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and they say, well, what's a relationship? We've really lost the ability to see each other seeking the good for another. And everybody is a means to our happiness. Every uh, relationship we have, we're rating and we're judging. And we're trying to balance that in a culture that really says, if you look out for number one, if you just focus on yourself, that's going to be your happiness. And yet the pagan philosophers of Aristotle, of course the great uh, sacred doctor uh, Thomas Aquinas, is actually showing it's about a life of virtue. It's about a life of other centeredness. And yet this tension uh, wasn't just something that happened thousands of years ago or even uh, hundreds of years ago in Aquinas' time. Uh, there's a lot of ways that we see this tension today. Uh, I loved what you wrote uh, in your book on shows about nothing, uh, really examining how culture today has essentially become nihilistic in its approach uh, as kind of a fallback from the failures of the Enlightenment. Maybe you could share just a little bit about that trajectory that we found ourselves today as, as a society. Well, let me frame it just briefly by, uh, by saying that I think, uh, and one of the things I tried to show in the book is that under, underlying the, the nihilism, which is a philosophy which says that there's no point or purpose or meaning to human life, no better or worse way of living, no way of determining, distinguishing between good and evil, true and false, uh, that underlying that is um, certain ideals that we have. So it's one thing to say, well, there's a bunch of nihilism around. That's an interesting observation. But what I was trying to argue is that nihilism actually arises out of things that we think are good in our culture. So it arises out of things like equality and freedom, misunderstandings of those matters. So equality um, uh, in nature, equality before the law are good things. But if we start to think that equality of every opinion merely by being stated makes it equally valid or equally true, we're headed to a kind of relativism and then to nihilism. The real deep problem, and this is pointed out in the great papal encyclicals of John Paul II and Benedict, it also underlies much of what Pope Francis talks about in Laudato Si, the big problem is a false understanding of freedom an understanding of freedom in terms of autonomy, that to be free, I've got to be free from any external constraint, or indeed even any internal constraint of my nature or my body. And, and once you make um, that notion of freedom an ideal, uh, there's nothing that can check it. So everything that we do is equally valid. And you're very quickly into a kind of nihilism where you can't discern between better and worse choices if you've abandoned all standards. And yet this, this passion for a kind of freedom uh, that knows no restraint outside of its own preference 
a kind of consumer passion writ large, uh, is in fact leads immediately to nihilism because it allows for no conversation of the sort we're having about what's a better and worse life, what's what's virtue, what's vice, what's true and what's false, what's good and what's evil, and there are a lot of examples of this in the culture. Um, uh, there are both uh, high culture examples and low culture examples. There are tragic examples and comic examples. But it's, it's a startling pervasive uh, theme in our culture. And I think it is rooted in something that John Paul II and Benedict and Francis have all, uh, have all uh, settled upon as a key problem in our culture, which is the false understanding of freedom. How can we begin to enculturate our society again to a correct understanding of freedom, where we understand freedom as oriented towards the good? and in some sense determined by the principle that the good is really there and we seek it in our freedom. What role would our contemporary culture like media have in that? What responsibility do we have to enculture well, that's that again? A, that's a big question. Let me speak from my own experience on this and how I got interested in, in this work was when I was a tenured professor at Boston College uh, and had done a lot of work on Aquinas but was interested in film and, and television. I was also interested in the lives of my students who were very bright. Uh, we had a lot of philosophy majors, I think they still do at Boston College, and, uh, and very good at reading books, but were not very good at making connections between what they were reading and the lives they were leading when they weren't in the classroom. Uh, it's not that the lives were necessarily completely hollow, they just weren't reflective about these things. You don't want to turn your class into true confessions of students <laughs> talking about what they're doing while they're not in your class. So what I decided to do was to start teaching uh, this material that became the book. Uh, to start pairing films and television shows with texts and to get them to try to see, this is kind of a reductio ad absurdum yeah. approach yeah. To, to the culture, which is, uh, okay, you want to go down that road? Let's take it all the way down that right. road to its logical turn. And let's see where your views of that every, every opinion is basically means the same thing and is equally valid, that freedom means no external constraint on my desires. Let's see where that goes. And by getting them to read texts and then look at films, uh, that illustrated this, uh, looking at a, a film or an artwork or listening to music um, uh, engages our souls in ways that just reading a text doesn't. It's important to read text, absolutely crucial. But looking at and, and getting students to be more articulate and critical about what they're taking in in terms of the media, that they're always on screens, right? Are you ever critical about what you're seeing or even about the mode of being on a screen constantly? Uh, I, I sort of wanted to get them to think about the way in which certain common assumptions in our culture led to nihilism. And almost nobody wants to embrace nihilism once they see it unvarnished. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you can't really embrace it fully. That's one of, the, one of the paradoxes of it. No one can, it's not, a livable, uh, it's not a livable philosophy because you have to make judgments about good and evil. So then you back them up and you say, okay, so we have to make these judgments. What standards do we use? And you, you start a conversation that's more positive. But in some sense, with much of our culture, I don't think we can do it directly. It's just the problem of our language again. Right. That if you're talking about freedom, that's so connected to arbitrary consumerist understanding of freedom. And this is on the right and the left in our culture. Uh, so, uh, so I think in a way, what I was trying to do with my work on popular culture initially was to sort of break down sure. the students' assumptions that you could think about these things and keep your assumptions intact without seeing the consequences that they led to. Fantastic. Well, we will continue to try to break down some of those cultural assumptions when we come back with Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us.
virtues and vices in popular media and how does God fit into all this? That's an excellent question. In terms of virtues in, a, in the popular media, I would point to a lot of the current trends of superhero movies and this idea of heroism. Uh, they're doing a great job when it comes to portraying heroes as self-sacrificial, doing, uh, sacrificing oneself for the greater good. And I would, um, however, be really cautious about this whole idea of non-judgmentalism in popular media, because non-judgmentalism in popular media, at its root, is about relativism. You don't have to trade top flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents and we're coming to you from the Communication Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment and my colleagues, Dr. Robert McNamara and Dr. Scott Hahn, are guiding our discussion on virtue and culture with our special guest, Dr. Thomas Hibbs. We were talking in the last segment about the reflection of many times the deficit of a true understanding of Christian friendship uh, within our culture. And yet culture being made in the, uh, by men and women who are made in the image and likeness of God, there's got to be some good stuff, right? I mean, even just as the pagan philosophers had a sense of goodness, where does today's culture look maybe towards some great examples of, of this? You know, I, in keeping with some of the things we were just discussing about the, the problem of our language and the, um, our inability sometimes even to recognize what's missing, I, I find interesting examples in our culture of where those things suddenly pop up. So let me give you a couple examples. Mm -hmm. um, there's a film, Gravity. It's a Sandra Bullock film. Quarren is the famous director. And it's, uh, uh, Sandra Bullock is out in a space station uh, in, in the middle of space. and gets separated from George Clooney is out there, he, he drifts off into space. There's a, a sort of meteor shower that ruins their studies that they're doing. So she's alone in this, um, in this little, uh, little uh, space tube and is uh, thinking that, has a moment where she thinks she's gonna die. And there's this amazing scene. She's got the radio on and there's some Chinese language that's sort of going in and out. And she begins by talking to this person saying, uh, she says, I, I, I know we're all going to die, but I'm going to die today. And she says, will you pray for me? This person who can't even understand her language. Um, no one will mourn for my soul. Uh, I could pray, but no one ever taught me how. And it's, it's an astonishing moment in our popular culture where, uh, where someone, I mean, it, it, how many times do you see people on film or TV who die and who know they're going to die uh, and who don't advert, we do see people praying some in, in film and television, but not a lot. And yet, I hazard to say, even in our culture today, most people who are approaching death at least have some thoughts about what's next, and many of them pray. What was interesting about that scene is she's, she's first of all personalizing, right? Everybody's gonna die, we're all gonna die, I'm gonna die now. And the sharpening of the intellect at that moment, right? And what do you think of then, who will pray for me? I could pray, but no one. So this absence of the practice 
of the virtue mm. of devotion. Uh, that's, a, that's a really astonishing moment to me. I think another, another film that, uh, and I think that's an interesting film, it's whole, the whole shape of it, Gravity. Another film is this film from a couple years ago called Arrival, Amy Adams, uh, which is a sort of science fiction alien invasion film, but with a real twist. So she spends her time as a scientist trying to investigate the language that these aliens are using. Uh, and it's, it's about the way in which uh, the limits of our world are marked by the limits of our language. It's also a beautiful, the, the, it turns out that if you, can, if you can learn to speak this language, you can have intimations of the, not only the past, but also of the future, which these aliens have. And she gets an intimation, I'm not gonna spoil it, she gets an intimation of her own future through this communication, and nonetheless embraces this future uh, wholeheartedly that, that has, I think, one of the subtlest and most profound pro-life messages that I've ever seen in a contemporary film. And, uh, but that's, th those are two cases where they're not, they're not explicitly Christian films, necessarily. Right. Uh, they're not explicitly films that set out to teach us about virtue. Art is better when it does that indirectly, when it's not directly trying to, mm -hmm. to be moralistic. Uh, but those, are two, those would be two examples of films, I think, that indicate the, the absence, mark the absence, that they start to name what's missing. And they also start to, to hint at the expansion of language and communal practices that lead us to, to an embrace of virtue. Uh, you know, there, there are other big movements. I mean, the, the Lord of the Rings phenomenon, I think, is a, a remarkable one, the endurance during popularity of those books. And the films, which are, uh, have good and bad in them as reflections of the book, but the popularity of things like that is, is an interesting sign of the hunger for quest stories that are about good and evil. And I think in terms of this new evangelization that we're trying to share the faith, you know, what you hit on there was it's about uh, noting the absence you know, many, uh, many people today aren't asking the questions. They don't even believe, again, this is the nihilism of it. They don't even believe there's an answer to the question. So why even bother speaking? Let's just eat, drink, and be merry, and just live in, in the present moment for our own satisfaction. And yet, you know, particularly tragic moments, you know, in those particular films, that moment of our own impending death, mm -hmm. those are very teachable moments in our own soul that God can really work through where we start to ask those questions that they've always been there. We just, we buried them in binge watching Netflix and we buried them in getting ahead in our careers and we buried them even in some goods of maybe family and relationships. Uh, and yet they're always present in the human heart. And I think that's one of the, the beautiful gifts about philosophy is it can really start trying to pinpoint those absences. Mm -hmm. And once you, once you notice something's missing, you, you can't just let the question be unresolved, in a sense, or else it drives us into a, a madness or a depression, mm -hmm. really, in many senses. Yeah, I, I do think you're pointing out a, a necessary path, a kind of preparatio evangelium, the preparation for the gospel that the ancient fathers would speak of, and how nihilism is nothingnessism. You know, mm -hmm. it 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 leads to nothing, but people don't know it until it's too late. Mm -hmm. And so that notion of the, you know taking in the okay, where does this lead? The reductio ad absurdum to awaken the sense that like, I don't want to end up there, you know? And art is such a good way to do it, 
because you know, in as much as it imitates nature, it has the capacity to almost rehabilitate the notion of nature because nature partakes of this nihilism. You know, there is no such thing as nature or essence and that sort of thing. There's just the autonomous self seeking pleasure, and truth is what the autonomous self says today or votes tomorrow and that sort of thing. Right. You know, but to get back to this idea of freedom and truth and to recognize that that freedom is mistaken as an end in itself when in fact it is necessary but only as a means to an end yep. and and freedom is necessary to achieve real virtue but f- virtue is the end in itself uh, you know what what I, I say to my kids when they were growing up that what muscles are to the body virtues are to the soul mm-hmm. and nobody wants to get rid of muscles right and so virtues are more than constraints being prudent is more than prudish Justice is more than politics. And when you recognize that, you know, the stronger you are in your body, the more good you can do easily and habitually. And how much more is that true for the soul? And then suddenly virtue, you know, and, I, and I'm excited too because, you know, as an academic, the last 40 years or 50 have seen a sort of revival of this notion of virtue, mm-hmm. virtue theory. Alistair McIntyre, a kind of Marxist who, you know, moves from atheism to theism and re basically restores this notion of virtue theory, you know, right. after virtue. And then in the church as well, you have survey Pinkers and others mm-hmm. pointing out the, the, the profound shift. It just seems so subtle, but it ends up being a seismic shift from Aquinas who understands freedom as freedom for excellence, freedom for virtue, freedom for perfection. Whereas later on, Occam, freedom from authority, freedom from law, freedom from power, you know, and that's the beginning of the autonomous self. And taking students down that path and showing them, you know, you go this way, you go that way, you end up with two cultures, two civilizations, and one ends up being inevitably nihilistic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the self-worshipping wretch of a person who is autonomous, you know, just ends up shriveled. And if you take them down that path, you're like, (laughs) you don't want to go there. Nobody does, you know. This is an alternative. And I think it's just a, a glory. It's not just strategic, though, in the sense of manipulation. It really is a strategy that will end up producing friendship in the process mm-hmm. with students or with family members, with friends, coworkers, and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's about the path, right? You know, in many ways, uh, a life less of virtue, that path seems attractive. Um, because you can do whatever you want to do. It goes back to that idea of freedom, but it's showing them the destination. In many ways, uh, sometimes Christianity can seem the opposite, but I think it's because it's not very well proclaimed. It seems like, well, Christianity is if you suffer right now and you just kind of take up your cross, uh, then when you get to the end, you'll be in heaven and right. it's wonderful. Missing the, the life to the full that Jesus Christ proclaims, missing the fact that no, actually it's the path and the destination of Christianity that is the true beauty and is the fulfillment of these natural desires that humanity has been searching for from from the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. Do you think just like the rehabilitation of virtue in Catholic Christian thought and also in philosophy, there's also something of a rehabilitation of virtue in culture, in movies and books? Is that the sign you're seeing in this kind of positive turn that you're beginning to notice? Well, I, I think there the culture is big and complex yeah. and uh, and contradictory. I mean, there's not one culture. <laughs> so uh, even Hollywood culture is not one culture. So I, I do see different strains. The nihilistic strain is still there in our culture, and it's not going away. And it's it, one of the interesting things about that is that artists seem to see this, 
right, and draw out the consequences of it in, in stories. Even if in the end their judgment of where we've ended up is unclear, yeah. they do spell it out. And, and art is really at its best when it takes things that are just beneath the surface in the culture and makes them explicit. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, uh, you know, so artists, you know, sometimes will defend what they're doing when they're accused of having a bad influence on the culture by saying they're just mirroring the culture. Well, no artist really believes that about him or herself, right? They all think they're geniuses who are actually producing something that no one else has ever done. So that's a kind of defense mechanism they use. But what they do at their best is actually to show us things that are, uh, that are right in front of us but we haven't seen clearly. And I think art, both sometimes in its negative moments, uh, where it illustrates a kind of nihilism that comes out of certain things, uh, can be instructive. And then it can also be instructive in the way that, say, with, with the popularity of something like Lord of the Rings, I mean, it's really interesting that superhero movies for the past 15 years and quest films are, if you look at the top 10 best-selling films, they're almost all in those categories, or large numbers of them. They're better and worse quest films, better and worse superhero. We could talk a lot about the deficits in those. But it does indicate, I think, something of a hunger for stories about good and evil and for characters who are ordinary and uh, take upon themselves an extraordinary calling. I mean, the greatest example of that is Tolkien with the hobbits, who aren't all that ordinary, uh, in, at least in physical appearance or in how many meals they eat before lunch, but, but they are ordinary in the way of life that they lead in the Shire. And, uh, and those quest stories where ordinary people just trying to be decent have thrust upon them the need to practice extraordinary virtue, when those show up in the culture, it's, it's worth taking note and become extraordinary through that practice of virtue. Through that, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the heart of the transformation that that's right. we're all yeah. longing for, that's and really right. looking for. Well, when we come back, uh, we are gonna have our panelists share their final thoughts on today's topic, so please stay with us. I think virtue is important um, because it leads to a more settled, stable kind of happiness, maybe as opposed to uh, more fleeting pleasure that comes about from seeking money or things like that. Um, Temperance, for example, uh, would lead to a more settled happiness when you are not eating as much and you're not drinking as much, you become healthier and just overall your uh, general sense of well-being uh, increases. How can Christians approach and engage the media, and what can we do as parents? How can parents teach the next generation? This, these questions are really uh, in my heart because they are the future of the church. And what we need to do is first of all, look into ourselves. How are we approaching the media? Are we using the media in inspiring ways, in ways that are healthy, in ways that build up? Or are we using the media in ways that consume us? In other words, are we consuming media or are we allowing media to consume us? You see, when we use the media in consumptive ways, we're actually less creative. And when we're less creative, we tend to consume more media. And we need to break that cycle. We need to become healthy consumers of media ourselves and model this for our children. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment where our panelists share some thoughts on what we've been discussing. Robert, would you start us off? 
Yeah, I'd like to start with that cultural aspect we were looking at last. It seems to me that you could speak of culture as a creative product of the human spirit. And as such, it tends to reflect what it is to be human and also express what it is to be human. And then I ask myself about the responsibility of all of the cultural production we have to not only reflect human life, but also to inspire human life to move towards goodness. And it seems in the past we understood culture positively in this direction, not merely a mirroring of ourselves, but also an, an inspiration for goodness. And I think you identify in your book some of the negative turn of that towards nihilism and now signs of a return to that. And um, I think what is important that, that that turn towards nihilism may be partly a response to a kind of heavy-handed moralism that you find in earlier culture products. And I was very interested in what you mm. spoke about earlier about the story itself revealing the good and evil, where that central story is the battle of good and evil. And of course, we find this paradigmatically in Christ and his victory over good and evil. And then, then we find story deeply in the human spirit, and story is not only a reflection of human life, but an inspiration. And so I think of our responsibility as consumers to find stories, to discern stories, where it's not only ambiguous characters, but the story is not ambiguous itself. Mm -hmm. There is clearly good and evil. There is virtue present here, and the story leads us towards that. And I suppose I would, I would think of our cultural consumption about, as a discernment of that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Robert. Scott. Well, you remind me of my own story, you know, as a, as a pagan teenager becoming an evangelical convert and going off to college to study philosophy and theology. And it was sort of odd to study philosophy. Why do evangelicals bother, you know? But I remember not only reading Aristotle and Plato, but then discovering as a sophomore Aquinas and, you know, embracing, I suppose, this odd label of Thomist Calvinist. And, you know, I'm thinking back to our first segment because it wasn't just that Aquinas made reading Aristotle safe. You know, there really was a sense in which going back to these pagan classics, you discovered gold in them, thar hills, as well as the scriptures of the old and the new, or, you know, the Summa Theologica. And the, the experience strikes me as being a clarion call for Catholics to recognize that grace doesn't just heal nature. We're not just forgiven. There's a sense in which it perfects us and enables us to go back and reason more reasonably about you know, what reason could have known, but doesn't actually know. And so to engage the culture, to engage philosophy, to engage Aristotle and virtue, and to correct the notions of freedom, not apart from the faith, but not simply by explicit recourse to revelation. You know, to me, it's a sort of left-right, you know, the left jab, and then the knockout it punches the gospel itself. But, you know, the, the effect, it seems to me, to be an empowering of us for the new evangelization by engaging a culture that we usually feel a deep aversion to, you know, and for good reason. I mean, there's a lot of just junk out there on the internet, especially, I suppose, but there's so much good, and it's not just on Catholic websites, it's not only on EWTN. There really is a sense in which growing, you know, raising our kids and beginning to realize, okay, we could just simply let them watch certain shows and then teach them the faith, but in the process, we, we saw the Grand Canyon. Uh, you know, they were never critically engaging the, the, the TV shows or the movies and that sort of thing. So by the time we got, we saw them getting into the teen years, that's when we'd always watch movies and then leave at least a half hour afterwards mm -hmm. to discuss, you know, what virtues, what deficits, what weaknesses there were and all that kind of thing. And I must admit that my kids have become much better critics than I was ever. And they also watch more movies than I ever did. 
But I, I just think that there's so, there's a kind of Amish mentality among faithful Catholics, like we have to avoid all of that. And there's much that we need to avoid. Yeah. But there's even more, I think, that we need to engage. And especially parents and grandparents too, and godparents. And I think this is an opportunity for us, again, to take words that people use and think they know and then suddenly show them. No, freedom is not freedom from a law or freedom from authority. Freedom is for excellence, it's for virtue, it's for justice, it's also for friendship. And well, that's not what freedom meant before. And likewise, I think we have to really restore that notion of virtue as the, the muscles of the soul that enable us to grow up and to do good, but also to achieve friendship with God. He has assumed what is ours in human nature for the purpose of sharing what is his, to be made partakers of the divine nature and to take it beyond the catechetical doctrine that is so true to the experience that really transforms lives and gets your hearts stoked so you just can't keep the faith, you've got to share it. Yeah. And you want to find whatever ways there are to do so effectively, through friendship especially. But I, I thank you for showing us how to take that Grand Canyon and bring those together by engaging that culture. You know, shows about nothing. You know, I, I wondered how you had all the time to read, you know, but I'm grateful that you did and also that you produced this book. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what is it that Lewis intimates about Aslan, that, that he's good but not nice or safe? Right. And uh, I, I think that's, or tame, yes, that's, uh, that's an important reminder for us, beauty is good but not tame and uh, I think we do need to have uh, we need to exercise virtues in our engagement with the culture and uh, sometimes that calls for uh, a kind of abstemiousness it certainly calls for temperance but of course temperance is not just about avoiding in the classical understanding of virtue temperance is about proper enjoyment and I think proper enjoyment in our culture and of its products is going to involve some serious understanding of, of art and beauty and of storytelling. Um, the, the other thing, I, the second thing I'd say about this is that um, good art requires good artists. And it's not enough. This is one of the things that Flannery O'Connor discovered as a great Gothic Catholic author, short stories, right? She was getting notes from people saying, why don't you write something edifying? <laughs> and her stories are dark, but they're deeply theological. And what she found when she read Maritan and Aquinas is that the good of the work of art is the good of the work of art. And you've got to develop, you've got to be an expert at the craft. And then how you see the world will depend upon how you see the world. And if you see the world as a Catholic, that's going to enter into it. But it's not enough to have good intentions. It's not enough just to have movies that are nice. It's fine to have those as, as products, uh, but we need great artists who are experts at their craft and then who bring from, from the way they've been formed, who see the world in a deeply ethical and Christian way. The last point I, I'd make about this is that I think maybe in some cases, you asked the question earlier about how you engage people on these matters. Um, beauty is the, la the appreciation of beauty is the last thing that we lose. We can, we can sort of suppress the notion that we need truth or we need virtue because those sound somewhat oppressive. B beauty is an experience that we all have. And, and actually the authentic experience of beauty is something that calls to us. And it's something that makes a demand upon us. And so maybe, uh, maybe one of the, if, if our popular culture is full of lots of nihilistic stuff, maybe the elements of art and beauty that are in our culture are the key ways back 
because it's in the experience of beauty that, that we experience our, that we feel ourselves, uh, uh, know ourselves to be moved right. uh, to something beyond us and something that makes a claim upon us. Well, that's a good way to start thinking about goodness and truth as well. And so uh, we can't do without beauty, and particularly as Catholics, having the, the greatest tradition in the history of mankind when it comes to beauty and the arts. Uh, we ought to be availing ourselves and immersing uh, to and of and immersing ourselves in that aesthetic culture uh, that we're heirs to as Catholics. Well, thank you, Dr. Hibbs. It's such a blessing to have you on the show. We really appreciate your time and your insights. And if you want to learn more about today's topic, we have a free handout for you. Uh, it's Dr. Hibbs' essay, The Liberating Power of the Humanities. The handout is yours for free by simply going online for faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on the screen in just a moment. My brief thought of today's topic, uh, I was reminded of the words of the document Ad Gentes from the Second Vatican Council, where it encourages missionaries. The language it uses is it would lay bare the seeds of the Word of God that lie hidden among their fellows. And this is part of what we are challenged to do as missionaries to a post-Christian culture. It's not just about, oh, no, the culture is horrible, the culture is wrong, you should go somewhere else. The challenge for those of us that are trying to engage it and proclaim the faith in it is finding ways to lay bare those seeds. And I think what we heard today give us some great insights as to the beauty of virtue, the desire for happiness, Many of those seeds are present, and yet we can point them to something greater, the fulfillment of all of it, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the message we try to proclaim here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we're grateful that you joined us for this presentation. May God continue to bless you in your ministries and in your engagement so that we can bring about a culture of life. God bless. download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381, or call 740 283-6357.